0: To fat chicks on top. You're here with your host, Auntie Vice. It's so good to be back with you, and I am so excited today. I have Dr. Monica Anderson on the show. She is amazing. If you haven't seen her TEDx talk yet on what dentistry can teach us about racism, please go check it out. We'll have the link in the show notes. She is a dentist. She is an author. She is a podcaster. Welcome to
1: the show. Hey, Auntie Vice. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to be here
0: with you. I'm a big fan. Thank you. It's great to have you. So you let let's start talking about dentistry because you're a dentist and people are terrified of the dentist. The dentist is the only doctor I like because it's the only part of my body that's not failing. <laughs> okay. We'll take it. We'll take it. I feel a need to brag. I've never even had a cavity. Beautiful. Uh, Get you a gold start, lady. <laughs> so You know, dentistry often is poo-pooed by other medical doctors as, like, not a real thing or, you know, not real medicine, but it is. So what made you attracted to go into dentistry?
1: First, I'll address the poo-poo thing. They uh, poo-poo it out of medical school until they have a toothache and that pain... And that infection (laughs) radiates all over the body and you quickly realize that the mouth is not separate from the other parts of your central nervous system, your vascular system, and certainly your pain threshold. So people change their minds about whether or not we need a pager or a title when they actually <laughs> Get into that Tom Hanks situation. Remember that movie he was in trying to extract his own tooth? I, w- I was sitting at that theater with uh, four of my friends who were all dentists, and we were just cracking up. We were like, You love me now, don't you? <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. So, you know what? I've always, I, I, I'll say that I, I, I was born a writer. I have eight published books. I've written a column for a daily. Newspaper. I, I truly love language. That is my passion. My profession is dentistry. And what they have in common is with each, I'm trying to help people. I really like helping people. And uh, I'm no longer in clinical dentistry because of my health, but I've been a dentist 33 years. And most of the time was chair with my own practice with a team. And it is a really unique thing in that, you know, that one on one with the patient. You spend more time with your dentist than anybody. Everywhere else you go, a tech, a nurse, somebody comes into the room and does most of it. And then you have a quick conversation with the provider. But we are there with you for a while, up close and intimate. And a lot of people really, really feel attached to their dentist. They get upset if we're not there, if somebody else comes in the room. It's like, wait, who are you? I don't know you, where's the doctor? You know, they wouldn't even want the hygienist sometimes. And I'm like, look, I can't do everything, y'all. Come on down. <laughs> we have to delegate a little bit. So that that's what I love. I like helping people. I like empowering people. And I like uh, educating people on how to help themselves. So that was it. It's art and science. Let me end with that. It is art and science, two of my favorite things. And the best thing you can do in dentistry is get somebody with a jacked up mouth. That's not a dental term, but, you know, (laughs) and and be able to restore their teeth, straighten them out, whiten them, get rid of decay, and then see the immediate transformation of their personality, of their self-esteem, or their ability to speak. Uh, Your teeth, really impact the way that you form sound. So it's, it's a ministry and I've enjoyed it. And I'm grateful that I got the opportunity
0: to be in this profession. I want to bring up, you talk about how, you know, they poo-poo it until a doctor will get a tooth infection, right? Or anybody, a lot of people
1: poo-poo it until they, it's not just physicians. It's a lot of people, you're not a real
0: doctor. I'm like, okay, we'll see. Keep living. Even the way the American health system is structured, we treat those 32 bones like somehow they're disconnected from the rest of the body for so long. And even today, a lot of people will have medical care, but not dental care. It's appalling. Yeah. Do you know where the... And, and it makes an enormous difference on things like heart disease. And one of the things people without the access to dental care, when you get an abscess, can cause all sorts of enormous health you problems, including death. You can literally die. Right. Do you have any thoughts on how we we change that? Because we finally got mental health parity with Mm -hmm. the ACA. Is there any movement to get dental health parity? Oh, absolutely. So critical. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, There is a lot of uh, lobbying
1: going on and you need to teach. Uh, speak with your leaders, uh, regionally, federally, and nationally, because that is where the great divide is, even when we had the, you know, when we were talking about the uh, Obamacare, Affordable Care, Act, I can't think of what it's called right now, the Affordable Care Act, right, because they said Obamacare so much, I forgot what the real name is, but that that they, you know, didn't carve out for Dental care for adults, in particular, we have the CHIP and Medicaid for children, for pregnant women, for people with disabilities. But for some reason, the message that you cannot separate your head, <laughs> you know, from the remainder of your body—that uh, infection doesn't work like that, blood vessels don't work like that—it's it's just crazy. I don't know the genesis of it. Uh, And maybe there was medical care before there were dentists. I'm not sure if you go way, way back in in time, what happened, but it needs to change. And it's just basic ignorance to separate the two. And it is really harmful. I mean, you see children in schools with, you know, their face swollen, you can't study, you can't learn, you can't work uh, without good oral health care. So I'm glad you brought that up. It's not a question I get asked at all, but that needs to change. And it has to start with uh, who is making the bills and the statutes and the rules and regulations in your state and in this country. That's that's where we have to go. So you can help us. We're trying, but we need everybody on board.
0: Yes. It's so critical. And it's just, we, we've become so detached from that. And thinking of dentistry as something that's optional, like you get braces, like they treat braces and a lot of this as an aesthetic thing, but it's not. It's so much more, and I think that's one thing people don't understand even about their own health.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I agree with you. I, I couldn't agree more. And
1: it's it's in our minds. Even we we just really need to bring that around, and we'll we'll treat our bodies differently. We'll take better care of our teeth because you you don't get another one. You, you lose that bad boy. It's over. It's gone. It's implant time or bridge or whatever whatever you have to do. It's not growing
0: back as we've faced more and more expansion of meth in this country and meth use, which attacks the teeth. Oh my goodness. There's part of me Woo. that thinks the only thing that's positive, that's going to come out of that is awareness of how critical dentistry is because all of a sudden like implant shops are popping up all over. Right. Because meth destroys teeth. Like it's horrible on them.
1: Well, I, I think they start ingesting a lot of sugar too. There is a, a combination of factors that the oral healthcare. You know ceases. it's not a priority anymore. The diet changes because they crave sugar. and then, yeah, just the destruction from what they're doing it's it's awful to see uh in person on radiographs now that I'm in insurance. you can tell right away a meth mouth. it is it, it looks painful and it it's really. Really bad for the for the people on top of everything else going on with uh, addiction, abuse, and misuse, uh, which I have you know a nonprofit around that called Drop the Drugs, and it it is just such a tremendous problem uh, in the United States right now. So, what does your nonprofit do? Uh, Drop the Drugs. I started in uh, twenty eighteen as a public service initiative, uh, public initiative. A part of an American Dental Association leadership program I'm in, but essentially we are raising awareness about drug misuse and abuse and the proper way to store and dispose of prescription and over-the-counter drugs, particularly opioids. People uh, on device just, we for years left prescriptions on the countertops in unlocked medicine cabinets, in drawers, on the nightstand, and now with this epidemic, this pandemic of of abuse, we have people just literally taking other people's medication. Uh, Kids are taking it accidentally because they get into stuff and they're being poisoned and uh, overdosing accidentally. Uh, And then we have people who come into your homes. Maybe they're working on your cable. Maybe they're cleaning. Maybe they're a visitor. You don't even think about it because you've got 30 back pain Mm -hmm. pills. They take three go sell them, mm-hmm. take them themselves. And it's just fueling this abuse and addiction. Uh, and that's, you know, become the leading cause of uh, one of the leading causes of death now, which just doesn't have to be if we just take some precautions, hide them, lock them up. And when they are, when you're done, uh, we tell people that you can, and it's true. and <laughs> We don't just tell them mm-hmm. that, but There are drop-off sites, DEA approved, all over the country, hospitals, what am I trying to say, pharmacies, hospitals, pharmacies, and police departments that will take them for free and no questions asked, it's anonymous, and you dispose of those and don't throw them into the, don't flush them down the toilet or throw them in the trash because that is causing uh, pharmaceutical pollution of our drinking water and of the soil. So that's what we do is raise awareness and we have we worked with we started with the Grand Prairie Police Department here where I live and simply by bringing that to people's attention and helping them understand the dangers they tripled their take back in 1 year in the first year that we worked with them. People don't know. They just throw them away or flush them because that's what we've always done. So it's it's been a very successful Uh, project, initiative, and so we turned it into a 501c3, got a board we're working with, just had a big event uh, for the last Take Back Day, and it's I I enjoyed doing that as well, again, around, you know, how can I serve others, how can I give back, so much has been given to me, and I'm really grateful.
0: And that's wonderful, and we'll also put up in the show notes the link to National Take Back Day, because that happens across the country a couple times a year, Right. Right.
1: Right. It does. But what I want you to put up the link to is where you can find a take bag site anytime. You just put in your zip code because it's, it's 365. They have two big days that they talk about a lot, but that's what we want people to do. As soon as you're done, you don't need that pain pill anymore. It's expired. Go get rid of it then. Don't wait till if it's not close to April or September. Don't wait. You can get rid of it anytime. And thank you for doing that.
0: Yeah. yeah, We'll make sure both links are up because I cool. used it here. So while we're talking about having extra drugs, the reason I have so many extra drugs is it took <laughs> forever to get diagnosed. I have a rare diagnosis. You experienced a rare cancer. Do you want to give a little introduction to how you found out what was going on and, and what happened? Sure. Sure. I have a gastrointestinal
1: stromal tumor, which is a very rare form of cancer. It's in the family of sarcomas, but There's only like 3,000 cases diagnosed a year in the United States, which is a very small percentage of the very large number of cancers that are diagnosed. And I found out I had just started at the company uh, that I'm with now. And I was in training up in uh, Wisconsin. And I got sick, thought I had food poisoning because I'd had a seafood dinner with a classmate. And I just pushed my way through just with sheer determination to get through that training, got back to Austin where I was living then and just could not take the pain anymore. The dehydration and uh, long story short, ended up in the ER finding out that I had a large mass in my abdomen uh, and I just had a physical And if you think about with women, our physicals are from you know the breast up and the waist down, and this tumor was right in between where they don't look unless you have some pain. I didn't have physiological or physical symptoms, but I had a very large tumor and ended up with two major surgeries. I don't have a stomach, which people just find remarkable, but it's imagine a a gastric bypass except that they actually remove your stomach. So. I had to learn how to eat again, had to learn how to do a lot of things again, but there's no cure. They, They take out the main, the large tumors before they invade another organ, and I take an oral chemotherapy pill every day to suppress the growth of the tumors, and the diagnosis, the treatment, the side effects, everything just changed my whole perspective, you know, on life what I need to focus on, how I need to spend my time. And just made me really, really grateful that every day I wake up thankful, just really thankful. Because I'm at 10 years that I've been on this uh maintenance drug and the the average lifespan at the time I was diagnosed was five years. So and we're
0: glad you're still here. You so with this being a gastrointestinal thing, one thing a lot of women patients face is, oh it must be your uterus. It must be PMS. Oh, it must be, you know, we're dismissed for a hundred reasons, right? And did you experience any of that or was it so sudden onset that you didn't have to go through that process?
1: I won't say it was sudden, but that's uh, why this Uh, Cancer can get so bad in people often before its diagnosis because it's, it's very, very quiet. They say cancer is quiet, but this one literally doesn't show up in your blood and it doesn't really cause any symptoms until normally it ruptures another organ. But I did, you know, I've thought back on it so much because people have said some really awful things to me to the basically to the point of you must have brought this on yourself. I mean, I've had Christians say, well, you must have sinned or you have unforgiveness. I've had people say, well, you're in the dental You've been in that dental office, you try to, you probably picked up chemicals, but and it's because I know we'd like to have a reason because if I can understand why that happened to you, I can keep it from happening to me. We don't like the idea of things just being random like COVID. <laughs> this could just happen to you. And I hope that doesn't mess up your SEO. I try not to say that word. <laughs> to, you know the algorithms work. I had I went back in the podcast host mode for a moment, but uh I did. I had some digestive issues. There were diagnosed as irritable bowel syndrome a few years before this happened. And in in looking back, that might have been the one and only symptom. But to the physician's credit, this is so rare. And the symptoms fit that I didn't feel like I was being in that case that I was being, you know, treated differently. But when it came to pain management afterwards. Yes, I do very much believe that around people of color and women, that we are not always given, you know, the same type or amount of pain medication and some other drugs. I mean, I've seen research. This is not just what I think. You know, there's a lot of literature out there to support that we can be treated differently.
0: It is. It's a huge problem. And as of 2020, white people have discovered racism as a problem in the healthcare system. It's something that Everybody else knew for a very long time that mm-hmm. if you are not white, you were treated differently by doctors. In fact, educationally, we we educate racism and sexism into our doctors. When you were going through medical school, what did you learn about different people and how they present? And when they're saying they're in pain, did they teach you that different people experience pain differently? Or how did they address that when you were going through school?
1: And, and dental school... Uh, In medical school, they might address that differently. In dental school, it wasn't so much that around pain, because that's a discussion, but it's not a a big part of it. What I do recall is that when I was in class, and I was the only African-American in my class at the University of Minnesota School of Dentistry, and in fact, for two of the years I was there, I was the only one in the school. And what I remember is so many classes around physiology, pharmacology, anatomy, or whatever, there would always be these sections about African-Americans. And it would be something I didn't feel was true. I can't remember an exact statement. It's been 33 years, but I just remember every eye in the room seeming to be on me. Like I had the weight of all black genetics on my back. (laughs) And I wasn't, you know, I'm a young student. I didn't feel like I was in a position to defend us. I would challenge that now, but I just had to listen to it, you know, whether they were talking about diabetes or hypertension or mm. whatever, because you don't go to dental school and just learn about teeth. You have to learn about the entire body. when I inject something, you know, or when we give you medication, it doesn't just stay in your mouth. So we have to learn the entire body. And so there was a lot of that and it was really uncomfortable. And our prayers gotten better for all students now, and sometimes it might be about Native Americans or other cultures. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times, you know, in in retrospect, it was very biased, sexist, racist stuff. But that was the so called science at the time, and I, and I'm glad we're
0: starting to look at it a little differently. But we've got a long way to go on that. We really do. There was a uh, survey. It's now it's almost a decade old now of first year Harvard medical students. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these are supposed to be cream of the crop smartest kids in the country going to Harvard Medical School. And they found 70% of them believed that Black people experienced pain differently than white people. Mm -hmm. So that's what you're starting with at the top medical schools. And it only becomes more profound as they go through medical school. So we're still teaching this. When it came to getting pain care and stuff afterwards uh, for your surgeries and stuff, because they literally nearly split you in two to take out the the tumors and say they did split me in two and took out all of my
1: intestines to get to what they needed to get to. It was a major, massive surgery both times. I'm sorry, I cut you off. I just had a I had a flashback, girl. <laughs> I was like, whoo! You just what I've been I, through. I can't even tell you. I can't even tell you what it
0: was like." <sighs> did, were you able to get adequate pain relief and stuff from that? Because that now, especially with the fear of people becoming addicted to opioids, there's a tendency to undertreat pain. Was right. that your experience going through? This predated that. We hadn't quite gotten around mm-hmm. to
1: educating the providers so much about that. But the, I'll tell you, after the first surgery, no, I did not have adequate pain control. I was in excruciating pain, not sleeping, just there in the hospital for a while. This was when they let you actually stay in the hospital, which I I couldn't walk. I couldn't take care of myself because they had, you know, my core muscles were destroyed. So my family literally had to lift me up to sit me up. I could walk, but I couldn't lower myself like to get in the bathtub or get on the toilet. So somebody had to help me do everything. And I was on a walker, then I was on a cane. It was a it was a fight. It was a fight to get back to the little person you see today, which is four or five sizes smaller than I was for most of my life. So after the first one, I didn't have adequate pain control and it was it was months that I was in pain and, you know, I was getting the take the Advil Tylenol stuff. And I didn't want to get addicted because I've had patients, you know, harassing me because they were addicted. But now I know there were there were better ways and different things that could have been done. So the second time, two years later, when the tumor was back and larger, that was when they took my stomach and part of my pancreas and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um that was part of my interview with surgeons. So folks, this is what you can do. You don't have to just take whichever surgeon they refer you to, and you can ask them questions just like they're asking you questions. And that was one of my questions was, what are you going to do about pain control? And I didn't care if they thought I was an addict or not, because this surgery was going to be even bigger than my first one. And I had no intention of another year of my life being spent in pain when there was something they could do about it. And The first guy was like, well, you know, it'll be tough, but we'll give you what we can. But it's just a hard surgery. And I was like, "Mm, mm." (laughs) so the next guy, he said, Mo, you know, it is a difficult surgery. takes a long time to heal, but I'm going to give you my number, my staff number. You can call us anytime if you don't have adequate pain control, you know, we talked about acupuncture, heat. There are a lot of different things you can do. I'm not just uh-huh. looking for a pain mess, but honestly, I want to know, do you give a damn? Do you give a damn? If I'm in pain, do you give a damn? Does it matter anymore? Or you did your surgery and you're done with me? Because some surgeons are like that. It's like, it's not my problem anymore. Go to your PCP or whatever. No, you cut me. You took stuff out of me. This is This is our problem until I'm better.
0: This is our problem. I love that perspective. This is our problem, not just mine. Because so right. many of them, yeah, I when I had lung biopsies and bronchoscopy, I, they wouldn't give me my results. So I kept calling and I was told, well, you're lucky the doctor even did the procedure. He'll decide when you can get the results. Oh, my. So there, there's that dismissing. Like, I did my part. I'll get around to it. You don't matter right. once you're off my table. And forget your anxiety of waiting, which I hate I when I have to wait on my scans
1: and oh, they don't, you know, they don't think about that, that this person is on pins and needles. Maybe you have 40 reports over there, but I'm waiting on one. And it's very important to me and my family that I find out what that one report says. Exactly.
0: Exactly. And, yeah. And most people don't know you can interview your doctors and ask about that stuff. So yeah, putting that out there is critical knowledge because Mm -hmm. you don't have to take the first person they offer up.
1: Right. Even if it's an oncologist, you know, the first one they referred me to, I was in such shock because I went from perfect health, 49 years old with perfect health to all of a sudden I got a rare cancer. And most people I talked to physicians never heard of it. So I didn't think to ask the first oncologist, have you treated a patient with just before he had not. And why he took me on as a patient is beyond me, but he, well, I take that back. He had treated one in Mm -hmm. tangent and collab with another doctor in another city who actually was an expert. I felt like that should have been revealed to me because there's some very particular ways and things that you need to know. And I I did, you know, some months later find out and, and went to another doctor who is a specialist, but that's an important question to ask especially if you have a rare diagnosis, you want to be with someone who's an expert
0: in that. It makes an enormous difference. Mm-hmm. Like, I would be so much happier if doctors had told me, I don't know what that is. Let me go Google it rather right. than pretending like they're the expert in the room because they've treated something adjacent to mm-hmm. what you have. Right. You said going through this and surviving All of these procedures and all of this, uh, all the cancer diagnosis and recovery has changed how you look at the world. How so? I was
1: always, I'm a go-getter. I'm a doer. I've always got multiple things going on, but I was not able to be present. I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't know that other people were present. I thought that they were like me. I was always thinking about the next thing. I kind of grew up like that. Um you know, my personality is like that. So I was missing the moments of the people right there with me, of the beauty right there around me, you know, because my mind it wasn't intentional, but I was always thinking about what else I have to do? What's next? I got to be fishing. I got to check these boxes. And I don't do that anymore. Right now, I'm talking to you. I'm just talking to you. I'm not sneaking in the background on the other side, checking emails. <laughs> you know, I'm not looking at my phone. I'm checking out that pretty wallpaper behind you, wondering how that lamp would look in my bedroom, and listening closely to your questions, and enjoying this conversation because. I realized before what happened with us was stay at home. And this happened to me. And they said, you know, five years is what the research was saying. I may not get this moment again. This is it. So if this is it, let me enjoy it. Let me smell it. Let me feel it. Let me taste it. And that has that was a big light switch in me. Now, I'm still a grinder. And I, I'm not going to waste time. But I learned to enjoy myself, learned to appreciate the people around me. And not apply my high standards for myself to everybody else. You know, I spent a lot more time just trying to understand psychology, human nature, communication, relationships. It really just made me do a deep dive into everything about being a human connected to other humans,
0: having a human experience. I love that. And talking about being a human connected to other humans, I'm going to circle back to your TEDx talk, because Mm -hmm. you talk about. And you bring up something that you know so many people don't think about is most of us don't have close interracial friendships. It's mm-hmm. it's not how 60 percent country works. And and talking about that need to develop friendships with people so you you learn and and can interact and understand other other human experiences and have those connections in your talk. You bring up making sure it's age appropriate. Now you've had two sons. How did you teach them about making those types of connections and growing and connecting with other humans? You know, for us,
1: because we were living in uh, Minnesota, uh, where African-Americans are a minority, we were pretty much immersed into a majority culture. So I didn't have to go out of my way as some people might have to do if they're in neighborhoods where everybody looks at them. So I've never had to go out of my way to ensure that they had a diverse experience. But what I did within our homes, we had within our home, we had uh, one of the things I talk about in the uh, uh, TED talk is to ensure that within your home that you're practicing what you preach. You know, so many people, they're like, oh, I'm an ally. Oh, I've got a black friend. Oh, but they don't watch any programs on television with African-Americans in them. Their kids have never had a brown or yellow or red all. There's no magazines, no publications, not a book. I look behind these people all the time with the books on their shelves when they're on the news talking head. How can you have hundreds of books and not have one by somebody who's not just like you? I don't care if it's somebody from Spain or whatever, and and they don't even realize that they would say I'm well read. Well, I, I don't see anything from anybody of another culture or another ethnicity that could present a diverse viewpoint, whether it's Mexico or Russia or Africa. And so unintentionally, I don't think anybody's thinking, oh, I'm going to go on LinkedIn and I'm never going to like anything by someone who's not like me. But if you look on LinkedIn, that is one of the most segregated places. (laughs) Yes. You know, I see it. It's like even You know, at the same company, everybody will check and like something this person has said. But if you look and there's an Asian person or an African-American person, only their colleagues like them seem to be reading their comments. What is that about? What is that about? So, yes, with my kids, I I, I was intentional about ensuring that we read diverse books, that they saw pictures, that the things that we said, you know, our language was positive. Mm -hmm was was race positive. And, you know, I've got some beautiful biracial grandkids right now. They are just adorable. And so I think it worked out. And we just didn't we didn't spend a lot of time in negativity and in, you know, race baiting and finger pointing. It's hard. It is hard. There's so much out there that we have to counter that they might hear from other kids, from other families. But I think it's just really trying to be positive and trying to show them the value of diversity and appreciating seeing value in everybody, whether it's socioeconomic, ethnicity, genders. There's a lot of ways you can have diversity. We want to go to black and white every time we hear DNI mm-hmm. or Martin Luther King, but it's so much bigger than that. It's, it's age. You know what, what are y'all doing to the old people? Why are y'all just putting us away and saying, okay, boomer, we have value. You know, we have value too. We have something to offer. So, it, it's there are a lot of little things you can do, age appropriate at home. A a doll of another race. You don't have to say anything.
0: You don't have to say a word. Just get them a doll. I I thought I I have uh, nieces and nephews. I think they'll ask questions. Right. Mm-hmm. My 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 sister's son is mixed race. His father's Moroccan. And so when st- kids will say stuff at school, he came home and would ask questions like, "Why are they saying this to me? What does this word mean?" And it's a great chance to have those conversations. Absolutely. You know, he started when he was about five, and you can start having those conversations of yeah, and and who you bring in is important because the younger they are and the more exposed they are, the more normal this becomes. Right. Uh, yeah, we took him to a we took him over to a museum show with one of my friends who's trans, and we explained. Well, Donna's did this and that, and you know, she, she's going to not quite look like your average woman that you see, but you know, mm-hmm. yeah. And we explained it to him. He's like, so she does this because it makes her happy. Yeah. Like, yeah. And he's like, and he was down with it. Like that was all. He, oh, she just okay. So I just use female pronouns. She makes her happy. We're good. And so by the age of ten, like. He's been exposed to so many of my different friends. It's like, well, as long as they're happy, that's what's important. Exactly, They're happy and they're not bothering you. That's the other thing I don't get
1: is why these people are all up in arms. This has no bearing on you, nothing to do with you. Let those people be happy. How many miserable people there are who are living lives they despise to honor somebody they see twice a year at Thanksgiving and Christmas, just miserable, you know? Or they're out there preaching all, all of this and they go home and beat the heck out of a family member verbally or emotionally. It's you know, you gotta just live your best life and do what you can. But I one of the things I say in the talk, I, I just want to throw this out there, is to mm-hmm. people are wondering where do I start? Cause it's weird just to walk up to somebody's dear friend and say, Hey, I'm trying to find a friend of another race. But mm-hmm. you know, one of the would things that recommend- black
0: friend is. Not yeah, what you mean?
1: No, you're weird. Get away from me. So, I recommend that you eat lunch with strangers, you know, just just a meal, just a cup of coffee. And and the stranger is probably your neighbor or somebody you work with or somebody, you know, in that organization you're in who you sit by at the meetings are at the table, but then you don't have any communication with so t- whatsoever. But then you're out talking about my white friend or my black friend. I always feel like you don't have to know my kid's name. But if you don't even know I have two sons, we're probably not friends. Because that's
0: just basic knowledge that you would know of a friend. Our joke here is if you refer to him as my African-American friend or my Asian-American friend, they're not. Your they're friends. not your friend. <laughs> if you have to say my race, I'm not your friend. I'm your friend, Mo. Period. That should be it. That's I don't know why we had to stick that qualifier in there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There's so much I want to talk to you about, but I do want to respect your time. So one thing I want to bring up is you weren't able to return to full-time clinical practice after you got sick. And being a go-getter, there, there we've had a number of folks on the show, including myself, who that transition can be very difficult, mm-hmm. especially if you spent your life building a career to walk away from the traditional manifestations of that can be hard. How did, what helped you get through that transition to this next stage of your life? It it was that, that mental transformation and
1: physical was difficult because in clinical practice, we're moving around a lot. I mean, clearly I like doing a lot of different things. So you're hopping from room to room. It's a different case. It's a different person. Every day is just a freaking adventure. And then to, now and and I love my job. It's great for who I am and where I am now. But when I first uh, got in this in this field in this industry, I'm in benefits administration, where I was sitting and typing all day. I can do that as a writer because I'm making up stuff out of nothing. But you can't do that so much in insurance. People don't like it. Uh, so <laughs> what you sticking with the facts? A fictional <laughs> a
0: fictional story around this claim. Right, right person's but,
1: backstory. Oh girl, it was it was hard for me. I thought EAP was somebody to help, like help desk. I, I was calling them, you know, I had forgotten my password or something. And the lady was going, what does your password mean to you? And I'm like, what? It doesn't mean anything. I'm just locked out. And she's like, well, you need to sit down and take a deep breath. About five minutes later, I realized that <laughs> This was not because I knew nothing about corporate stuff. So it was there was a lot to get adjusted to all of the meetings and the meetings about the meetings. And my mind, my mind had to just go in a whole new direction. But I'm I'm happy that I still get to use. I mean, I've been a dentist 33 years. I I wouldn't just want to put that down. Even though I do these other things, they all about they blend together to make me happy. You know, for other people who have completely had to walk away. So I still get to use it. I'm just not seeing patience, mm-hmm. is my point. For other people who just have to completely walk away, I can imagine that is very, very difficult. And I just I am forever trying to stay focused on what's good, what's good in my life, even my problems, what's good about this problem, as Representative John Lewis says, we have good problems.
0: It's true. So you have brought up your writing a couple of times. We haven't talked on that. What what are your books about? What do you write about? I have uh, eight
1: books. I write both fiction and nonfiction. Uh, I've had two uh, bestsellers. They're romance, as far as I can get from industry and technical stuff, uh, Symphony, and When a Sister Sped Up, I Stand Accused, and Never Close Your Heart are my uh, novels. I really, really enjoy writing romance novels. They're not, you know, they're they're PG, but they're, they, you know, you'll have a good time with near good beach read. And then uh, my best-selling book is actually success is a side effect, which I wrote uh, as I was recovering from that second surgery. And really honestly thought I was going to die because I was in so much pain and I was failing to thrive for lack of a better word. I wasn't able to digest food or eat. So I got down to a size double zero. And so I was like, It was, I mean, you could see through me, girl, you could, I Mm. I could literally see the outline of not just my ribs, but organs. It, it, it took a lot of work and a a nutritionist and uh, just a lot of prayer to get me back to where I am. And so, um, I wrote that book and I wanted to, I, there's, uh, personal and professional development, I have learned so much. I've gotten to do so many things, lead people, be part of great teams, start some really great community service projects and have some really great mentors. And I didn't want to just take that with me. I wanted to share that nobody should have to, you can make new mistakes, but you don't have to make mine. And i uh, <laughs> The feedback has been tremendous. A lot of people gifted to uh, young people as they're leaving school and then other people transitioning out of the workforce. And so I've written that. And then uh, my my most recent book was on self-publishing because I self-published most of my books, not two of them. And people kept asking me about it. And it's kind of like, you know, if I keep getting asked the same thing long enough, right, <laughs> I'm going to put it in a format that I can just go here, uh, call me if you have any questions. And uh, I, I just got an email from a publisher in Atlanta, uh, Tamika Michelle Johnson, just published her first book. And, and she she put it on Amazon as well, that she used uh, my book, me and Dr. Stollard, to get her through that journey and publish her first book. That is a great feeling for me. That's that's a good feeling. Yeah. You know, and you do it, you Mm -hmm. give back, you help people. So you know how it is. I I respect you for what you're doing.
0: Thank you. Thank you. And we'll have links to all of your books up in the show notes, obviously. Um, I did read um, don't close your heart and that it's very sweet. I do erotic writing myself um, and Mm -hmm. I do a lot of romance novels and yours is very sweet and well done.
1: So yeah, we'll have links
0: to those. If our listeners want to find you, if they want to, to contact you, if they want to hear your podcast, plug all the things.
1: All right. I am easy to find. It's Dr. Mo Anderson, D-R-M-O-E-A-N-D-E-R-S-O-N. Put the E after the O for excellence. And you can find me on every platform, LinkedIn, Dr. Mo Anderson, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter. I try to be omnipresent. So wherever you are, I'll be with you also. And I I also do a little coaching if you need speaker coaching. Uh, I'm an experienced speaker. I've been speaking for 30 years and I'll be happy to help you whether you're defending your dissertation, talking to the board or just you realize you need to improve your communication skills. com has links to everything else, YouTube, podcasts, all of that. And I, I'd be happy to connect with you. Just message me, hit me up. Let's do it. Thank you, Auntie Vice. I appreciate you so much.
0: Thank you for being on our show. We'll have all of those links for our readers. Don't forget to listen, like, and subscribe. And we'll see you next week. And now, a moment of gratitude.
1: Uh, You told me you were going to ask that question. And honestly, I have so many things I'm grateful for that I couldn't narrow it down. But in light of what we've talked about with my medical history, I think people will understand when I say I'm just grateful for another month, another day, another hour, another minute. I'm grateful to be here.
0: at FatChicksOnTop.com